0: It certainly helped me find my identity as an Indigenous man
1: in a Defence Force. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them, and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd, and this is Life on the Line. The only thing I was scared of was failing, with letting down the people there that I was supposed to support. Things
0: went south really bad.
1: You've got to have an element of crazy to be good at what we do. There was an my ego attached to being a fighter. I'm shot. Being around big, tall trees, like. thick shrubbery, potentially connecting There's to other moments in his life yeah. Yeah. during but battle. So no
2: when the yeah. going to get blown off. You
1: know part of The story of transformation is powerful.
2: I'm Sharon Maskeldare and you're listening to Life on the Line. In today's podcast, we meet Private Zion Connors, who's 20 years old and enlisted in the Australian Army back in 2017. He's from a proud Indigenous background in Coffs Harbour in New South Wales, and he's going to share with us in today's podcast how his Indigenous heritage is still a great inspiration to him in the Australian Army today. Zion, thank you very much for coming on Life on the Line.
0: No problem. It's good to be here.
2: Awesome. So. Perhaps tell us a bit about your background in Coffs Harbour. I mean, what was it like growing up there?
0: It's definitely great growing up there because, like, there's a lot of things to do as a kid there. I was always at the beach, you know, going to the skate parks, hanging out with my mates.
2: Are you a bit of a, a skateboarder, or, or what's your particular specialism?
0: I rode a bit of everything, actually. So I rode skateboards, like you said, scooters, mountain bikes, BMX bikes, trial bikes. Had some particular interesting times there. There were a lot of, dare I say, sketchy characters there most of the time. One particular occasion, this man who would always come there, we called him Uncle Frederick. He was about late 20s, maybe early 30s. And since the skate park was right next to um, the shopping center, he'd go into KFC and get one of those crusher cups. And he'd go to the the Bolo and he'd fill that up with red wine and then he'd drink that all day and then come over to the skate park and, like, just harass us, you know, just talk obscene amounts of crap to us kids and, like, we'd we'd just take the piss out of him most of the time. (laughs) Oh, it was great.
2: So back in those days when you were on your skateboard at the park and there was the crazy guy there with his crusher cup full of wine, did you ever imagine that you were going to be joining the Australian Army in future?
0: Yeah, I did. Like, I did have some aspirations at the time because I'd always see those those Facebook ads pop up and they were like um, army challenge yourself and you know advertising doing its job and whatnot and then this one day at school uh, the principal made an announcement that we're going to be having those defense force information sessions come up I was like oh hell yeah I'm going to go to that and so they came through it was a RAF guy a navy guy and an army guy And the entire time, they were there asking questions and answering other people's questions and doing their thing. I sat there the entire time, like, just in complete awe. I was like, holy crap, like, these guys look awesome. I want to do what they're doing. And so after the information session stopped, I looked into it, and you had to be at least 17 or over to enlist, and I was only, I think, maybe 15 or 16 at the time. So I was like, oh crap, I can't really do much here, so I'll wait, and I gave it two years and then eventually ended up enlisting.
2: So what was it about the three guys that came to speak at your school that that was so enthralling? I mean, was it just the kind of the way they stood there, their bearing? What was it about them that fascinated you so much?
0: Yeah, yeah, so it was pretty much, like you said just then, the way they presented themselves, all the cool stuff that they mentioned that they did in their job. Because I think one guy was infantry in the army and the RAF was, an airfield defence guard and the Navy guy was, I think, maybe a clearance diver or a boatswain's mate or something. Like, I'm not sure what the jobs are, but... (laughs) But yeah, like, they spoke very highly of what they did and, like, they were standing upright with a straight back the entire time and, like, talking very methodical ways of speaking about the things that they've done. And it was great and I loved it.
2: So when they captured your imagination that day, what did you think you were gonna be doing? I mean, did you imagine that you'd be working in army, you might get deployed? I mean, what kind of job did you anticipate you'd be going into?
0: Well, I didn't really think of a specific job that I was going to do. I was just thinking like, Oh, my God, oh, guns, explosions, you know, cool uniform, good money, good career. Like, that's all the things that went through my head on that day. But then when I started looking into it, I was like, OK, like, what am I actually going to be good at and what can I do?
2: And did you have any military experience in your family? I mean, have any of your relatives served in the Australian Defence Force?
0: No, not really. My cousin, Luke Browning, he's an ex-infantry. Uh, he served in 3RER up in Townsville and he did one or two deployments to East Timor. He discharged back in 2013, because I think he was at the end of his tether. So, But yeah, that's the only military experience in my family.
2: So it sounds like that day at school, when you were inspired by those three gentlemen in uniform that that really was the day where it came together for you and you you made that decision that you were gonna join up yourself.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
2: So tell us what happened then. Did you then have to go to recruiting and and obviously go through the whole training thing? Can you talk us through what that was like?
0: So after I did a bit of research, like into age requirements and the fitness requirements into the army, the next day I spoke to my careers advisor and they were like, okay, um, there's another session coming up on this day, you can attend it then. I was like, OK, cool, I'll do that. Then I asked her for if there's any, like, happening outside of school and then I would go to them and get as much information as I could out of the people that went there.
2: And what was the reaction of your family when you told them that you were going to be joining up? I mean, given that you had a cousin, as you described, who was uh, ex-infantry, but I imagine that your decision perhaps wasn't necessarily an expected one for your wider community back in Coffs Harbour.
0: After I made the decision that I was going to join the army, I came home after school and I said to Mum, I said, Mum, I think I want to join the army. And she's like, oh, really? You know, like very surprised and a bit excited as well. I was like, that's great. What job do you want to do? I said, I don't know, but I'm going to look into it. And then eventually one by one, after my family members came home from school and their jobs and whatnot, I told them, they were like, oh, wow, that's, that's insane. You know, that's, that's a big leap to the job that you're doing now.
2: So you mentioned one by one. It it sounds like you've got a few family members then. How many brothers and sisters do you have?
0: (laughs) Yeah, I I do have a pretty big family. I I have um, five brothers and five sisters.
2: (laughs) Oh, my goodness. You have five brothers and five sisters. Wow. And where do you sit in, in the 11 offspring?
0: So I'm kind of in the middle of everyone three younger brothers, and then my two older brothers.
2: Okay, so what was the reaction then of your brothers and sisters to all this when you decided that you were gonna join up?
0: Well, at the time, my two oldest brothers weren't there. They have their own jobs and their own families, and they were obviously busy doing their own things. But when my younger brothers come home, I tell them, I'm like, wow, the army? Like, what? Are you really going to go to the army? And then when my sisters came back, you know, obviously, like, same reaction from mum. That's crazy. Like, are, yeah, are you really going to join the army? Like, are you really going to, like, serve your country and all this? And I'm like, yeah, hell yeah. Like, it's awesome. Like, one of the best jobs out there.
2: And was it important to you that you had the support of your family? Are you a close-knit family?
0: Yeah, yeah definitely so I think having the support of my family going through the process of joining the army was crucial into me maintaining the mindset of still joining even so while I'm in here like they're still giving me insane amounts of support without any of that support at all you know I'd be struggling right now to be honest.
2: We'll talk a little bit more about your current deployment a little bit later, because you're actually on operations right now. We're speaking to you in theatre in the Middle Eastern area of operations. But first, before we get to that, just tell me a little bit about the training that you went on. What was it like at the age of, of 17, leaving your family and going away to this new world? Was the Australian Army?
0: Particularly interesting circumstances that I ended up coming into the Army one of the processes is we come in to do our U session and that's it basically assesses you to what jobs based on your aptitude that you can do and at the end of that since i mentioned that i was indigenous on my application forms this lady approached me after the after the test and she said we noticed that you're an indigenous person we have the army indigenous development program um happening in two months time in august do you want to do that instead of going straight into recruit training. She went on to mention that it's a bit longer than the recruit training, but you get a lot more out of it, like in terms of cultural awareness. I managed to make the decision in about 30 seconds. So I was like, mm, tossing up, go straight to Kapuka and do recruit training or go up to Darwin in the Northern Territory and do the Army Indigenous Development Program. And so that was the decision I made. I went up to Darwin and did that course.
2: What did you cover on that course then? You talk about the incorporation of culture. So how did that happen?
0: So on the course, it covers basic maths and English, because there were some people who were from very, very remote communities of Australia who you know didn't have access those facilities and you know the education, but even more so, it touched on how to be as a soldier, how to act as a soldier, you know, how to portray yourself to people, you know, how to behave and like be a mature kind of adult because it did teach us a lot about our culture as well. We did have Uncle Cole Wadigo, I think at the time was the Indigenous Affairs Officer down in Canberra, and he came up for a week. He sat all of us around in what's called a yarning circle, and um, we all got to know about where everyone else comes from, you know, their backgrounds, their communities.
2: You mentioned Warrant Officer Class One, Cole Watergo. In fact, early on in my own army career I had the opportunity to work with him on the Indigenous pre-recruitment course in Adelaide. So I actually know him well. Oh, and I, oh, I wow. and I remember I remember there being some incredible stories that came out of those yawning circles.
0: Yes, yeah, absolutely.
2: And just how empowering it was for the young Indigenous people who were doing the course to be able to share those stories. And indeed the young people engaging in the program to really learn from each other. It It sounds like it had a similar impact for you as well.
0: Yeah, it did. It certainly helped me find my identity as an Indigenous man in the Defence Force. So after we finished that course, we went straight to Kapooka, but I think it was around December. So we went straight on Christmas leave, did that, and then we came back to start crew training. And I think I was maybe one of the handful of guys, or Indigenous guys and girls, actually, that actually made it through Kapooka. We're all still happily serving today.
2: Just talk us through, perhaps, with the Army Indigenous Development Programme, it draws people from across Australia. What's it like sort of all coming together from different Indigenous communities and really sharing your stories and coming together as one within that military context?
0: So there certainly were a lot of people on the course. I think there was about maybe close to 30. I can't remember the exact number. We were sharing rooms at the time. As time went on, we would be swapping around with each person because the instructors wanted us to get to know each other on a more personal level. And so I met this one really great guy, Dylan Bateman. He is a football player for the Tamworth Bears back in New South Wales, Australia. And he is probably the nicest giant I think I've met. As time went on, like people came to the realization that army maybe isn't the best job for them. So at the end of the course, there were only, I think, 12 or 13 left.
2: And the 13, did you keep in touch with them?
0: Yeah, some of them. Like some I don't keep in touch with, some I do. A lot of them, I kind of just let go and just let them be because I didn't want to go out of my way to make an effort for people when they didn't really show any interest towards me on the course or anything like that. But with the guys that I do keep in touch with, they're still the same person that I met from the first time. Sometimes we'll, you know, have a group chat or a group phone call. You know, we'll talk about life, you know, what's going on with their life. Um, you know, how's the family? How's the job?
2: So you obviously completed the course successfully and then you joined the Ordnance Corps. Yeah. Tell us a bit about the work that you got trained to do within that call.
0: So another interesting thing that happened to me while I was in Kapuka was some of the guys that were on the Army Indigenous Development Programme with me all wanted to go infantry, but I was probably one of the only guys that wanted to be in the Ordnance Corps. And so I think halfway through Kapooka, us guys were pulled aside and they, they pulled us all, all into a room and they said, these are the positions that are available. There's only 20 positions in infantry and that's it. And I was kind of gutted. I was like, what the hell? what's the go with this? And we're like, oh, there's, there's nothing we can do about it. You can either wait another six months here in Kapuka until the position that you want opens up, or you can go straight into an infantry training establishment, do that, and then core transfer after you've done some time there.
2: And you decided to join Ordnance?
0: Yes. I was kind of excited to do it. because i was like, oh, okay, I'll, I'll give this a crack, you know. It shouldn't be too bad, because like, most of the guys in my platoon in Kapuka were going infantry anyway, so, you know, I already knew people and, like, I was comfortable. So I kind of just kept an open mind with going through the course, but it wasn't until maybe halfway through, I think maybe about seven weeks in, where we were outfield and we were doing off ops offensive operations, which is basically attacks, like, you know, section attacks, flanking attacks, ambushes and, you know, the likes of that. It was very taxing, especially for me, cause we'd have to carry around, you know, 40 kilogram packs full of all of us, all of our stuff, you know, plus our weapons and whatnot. And we'd just be moving all day, every day from one spot to another, doing navigation. It was, it was pretty brutal.
2: How did you manage that physically?
0: Outfield, I kind of just took it on the chin cause I did have my guys there with me, you know, they'll joke around and make life a bit easier but after we get back you know we all hit the town and you know go out and get drunk and like absolutely blow our paychecks away
2: <laughs> it's all part of the fun though isn't it
0: oh yeah absolutely
2: now you've been working in the armory where you're based right now man in the middle east so how come you got to have the skills required for that and what's the training like to work in an armory
0: working in the armory it's pretty relaxed job there's a lot of sitting around because you don't really do any work until a group of people will rock up and ask for, you know, weapons, you know, night fighting equipment or anything like that. Or if someone comes up with a broken weapon and they want to get it fixed and then we'd hand it off to the armorers and they'll, they'll do that. But if we're not busy, a good mate of mine, Ron, him and I would be in the armory, you know, we'd be doing stock takes sometimes, um, getting all of the weapons, night fighting equipment, uh, laser range finders, all in serial order, and that, that took us quite a while. It was a long couple of days going through all of that stuff.
2: When you found out you were going to be going out to the Middle East on operations, what was your first reaction? Were you excited? Were you apprehensive?
0: To be honest, I was I was pretty stoked because when it was announced, I hadn't even done a year in my unit yet. There were a lot of people that were waiting to go on this deployment that I'm on now. And then here I come, fresh digger, straight out of IETs, comes and takes a deployment off people. <laughs> so I was I was I was pretty pretty stoked.
2: How did you handle that? Because I imagine there might have been a bit of jealousy.
0: Yeah, there was. I got a lot of dirty looks from people. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't cocky about it, but you know, on the inside I was like, yes. It's about bloody time. It's the fruits of my labour. Straight away, as soon as my name was announced on the deployment list, I rang mum and she's like, oh my God, are you serious? For how long, like, how long are you going over there? Are you gonna come back home? You know, like being worried as, you know, mothers tend to be.
2: So what did you say to your mum to try to put her mind at rest?
0: Well, I kind of, I warned her that I may or may not be going, so I just said, I said, Mum, guess what? And she's like, oh, God, what? I said to her, I said, I'm going. And she's like, oh, no, 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 no. And she started pacing around the room, saying all these obscenities. And you know, she's like, are you gonna come back? Promise me you're gonna come back. I said, I'm coming back. I'm not going to a war zone. I'm going to a very relaxed environment. I can call you every day. I'm gonna be doing the same job that I'm doing in Australia over here. So it's, it's not gonna be so much to say as a culture shock or a learning curve.
2: Because I think this is something that's quite interesting, isn't it? Is that clearly within the Middle Eastern area of operations, there are a number of flashpoints. There's a number of conflict zones out there right now where people are putting their lives very much on the line in their service for Australia. But indeed, obviously the location where you're based, and we're not going to name exactly where you are, but um, you're essentially in an environment where you're not experiencing that daily threat. So what is the experience like of being on operations in that quite, specific environment? Well,
0: as the days go on, sometimes I just let things flow. I don't really take notice of I'm outside of Australia, I'm across the other side of the world, but sometimes I do sit down and I think, wow, like I'm I'm on operations and I've only just managed to make it a year into my unit. But yeah, it's like a sort of a, an existential crisis where I I'll just sit down and I think, wow, like I'm I'm actually over here. Is it like is this is this happening? Like I'm making so much money. I'm doing my job, providing you know like logistics support to other operations across the Middle East. It's it's pretty daunting when I think about it sometimes.
2: Do you think your family are proud of you?
0: Oh, yeah, they, they tell me every day, every time I call.
2: And what difference do you think perhaps you're making to your family? You mentioned earlier you're a member of a large family. You've got 10 brothers and sisters. What do you think this might mean for them, what you're doing right now?
0: I play a massive inspiration and role model for my three younger brothers, Brendan, Ziggy and Malian. Well, to me, I think they're quite easily influenced and one of my younger brothers, Ziggy, he's always kind of, you know, looked up to me and he'd always ask me for advice on things after I've joined the Army, you know. Like, hey Zion, like, like what should I do with this? You know, is, is this a good thing to do? I'm glad that I'm the person that they look up to because I'd rather myself in the job that I do now with all of this experience and knowledge on how to do things in life, like in general, rather than, you know, them going out and like just partying every weekend, you know, blowing away their money, you know, not really doing much with themselves or having much job prospects.
2: And you mentioned earlier the importance to you of your Indigenous background. Do you feel that you're also inspiring your Indigenous community back in New South Wales.
0: Over here, we managed to have a little ceremony for National Reconciliation Week, which is basically about the coming together of Australians and Indigenous Australians as one, moving on from the past and accepting that certain things happened, but the future is where we can you know, make amends and heal things. And so I do hear from my community back home, you know, they, they tell me the same things that my mum and my family tells me, that, you know, they're proud of me. You know, you're setting a role model for the men and women, the guys and girls back home in your community. And my grandmother, Elizabeth Connors, wants to take me to her birthing tree after I get back from this deployment and have me recognised in her national park on like a little commemorative bronze plaque somewhere there. I'm not sure how that's going to go down.
2: How do you feel about that zone? That sounds like an incredible honour.
0: It's pretty amazing. I really didn't think that I'd, you know, managed to make it at this point in life because I did have my rough times and I thought, you know, I'm never going to come back from this, but then I picked myself up and now here I am. And it's, you know, I've come a long way in such, in just under three years, I've done a lot. And I don't think there are a lot of people out there in the army at my age with my tenure in my unit that can say that they've, managed to do a major exercise and managed to go on a deployment at the same time.
2: You mentioned being part of National Indigenous Reconciliation Week. What were your feelings during that week? I mean, you talk about the fact there was a ceremony. Did you really feel a sense of coming together?
0: Yeah, absolutely. I felt pretty proud, to be honest. And I didn't even think that something was planned for national reconciliation week but when i found out and like started putting things you know into place you know organizing things handing over the didgeridoo to um the commander and the message stick and those beautiful absolutely beautiful cupcakes i'm not sure who made them but who made them is an absolute legend there were these cupcakes <laughs> which had the aboriginal flag on them like on there with icing and then the torres strait islander flag there as well you like, beautiful cakes so i have a photo but can't really show it to the podcast here
2: we'll try and put it on our social media page perhaps so that our listeners can see those cupcakes because they sound pretty amazing
0: yeah absolutely
2: (laughs) so from here i mean there may be a number of young indigenous australians listening to this podcast what would you like to say to them
0: well for anyone that's listening out there and does have aspirations of joining the army or you know is going through a rough time and especially in times like these with um what's going on in the world at the moment you know covid and um BLM, I'd say it would be quite tough to get out there and, you know, find yourself, find out what you can do and who you are. But all I can say is just go for it, you know? The road doesn't end here. When I was down in my dark, dark pit, I didn't think I was going to come back from that. I thought I was potentially going to lose my life. And so I picked myself up, sacrificed uh, some relationships and some certain things that I probably won't say on here, but after doing so, it's made me a much, much better man where I am today.
2: Private Zion Connors, thank you for sharing that with us at the close of today's podcast. Obviously, we will respect your privacy and and I won't go into detail with regard to what you've touched on there, but clearly you've overcome some great adversity and you're an inspiration to Indigenous Australians everywhere.
0: Thank you very much, Sharon. It's it's wonderful to be on this podcast.
2: I'm Sharon maskell and you've been listening to Life on the Line.
1: Subscribe to this show in your podcast app and on YouTube to never miss an episode with Joint Task Force 633 and the other incredible stories of Australian veterans from our Army, Navy, Air Force and Special Forces. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Life on the Line Podcast and on Twitter at LOTLpod. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com you can contact us by emailing podcast at life on the line podcast.com. life on the line is brought to you by thistle productions artwork by big cat design music by dan van Werkhoven. thanks for listening and lest we forget